1999, a film came out that I remember causing quite a stir. Among those not old enough to remember the release of The Exorcist, and I include myself here, uh, being in secondary school at the time as I was, it was whispered that this film was indeed the scariest film ever made. More than that, it was whispered that this film consisted of real footage that had been found, footage taken by some luckless young movie makers who had met a terrible end. And though the world was soon to find out that this was not exactly the case, the buzz that surrounded this film, the trepidation we felt about going to see it, and the mere possibility that it might indeed have been in some way real, meant that the movie existed for us in a murky half-world, somewhere between reality and urban legend. The few facts available to us about it had the quality of a second-hand whispered tale from the schoolyard or the campfire, one you didn't believe exactly but that you couldn't disprove either. I remember being at a friend's house using the then new internet to read and print out reams of background info about the film students who had gone missing and the history of the legend they were supposed to have been investigating. I can't say we took it all seriously, but we did wonder, and we did investigate. And because all of this occurred in an age when it was still difficult to access information to cross-reference or to check a supposed source, this film remained, for many of us, in a place of almost reality. Even after its fictitious nature was revealed, after the myth and website proved to be nothing more than innovative marketing ploys of the kind that would never again be used quite so successfully, the film still retained its almost mythic aura. I never saw the film, not in those days at least, but I'm very glad that I was around to experience this strange thrill of belief at the time. After our innocent attitude towards the internet had been spoiled, we would never again be as open to such a trick or such a belief. When the film The Fourth Kind tried a similar gimmick ten years later, its cover was almost immediately blown, robbing the film of the kind of mystique that still shrouded the earlier movie, and that had made it an international smash hit as well as a truly trend-setting 90s pop culture juggernaut. This is White Atlantic Weird, and the film, of course, was The Blair Witch Project. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You can prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. crazy shit. Please, I just, I gotta get this on 16. Jesus Christ. That's fucking creepy. 
You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, the podcast that examines parapsychology, the unexplained, and pop culture to find out exactly why people believe weird things. This episode, American Folk Horror, The Blair Witch Saga Part 1, it's on all sides of us. This is Kean here, and I am recording, as usual, from the Wide Atlantic Weird Cabin. Spring is finally, well, starting to get going for us here in the south of England, and we have a few flowers blooming and a few trees starting to pop out their leaves too, mostly the sort of uh, fruit trees that we have in the forest around the cabin. It's a bright, cold day in early spring, and I'm sitting out on the porch in the front of the cabin. You know, springtime is a good time for rituals. Always makes me think of films like The Wicker Man. Uh, Being, I suppose, that so many folk horror movies have a connection to sacrifice and rituals that are done to ensure the return of flowers, plants and crops particularly. As I sit here, I'm drinking a can of all-day IPA from Founders Brewery. It's one of those uh, so-called session IPAs because it's got a low percentage and supposedly it's one you can kind of sip on all day maybe when you're out and about doing something indeed on the front of the can we have a picture of uh, what looks like a Winnebago uh, on its way into the woods for perhaps a leisurely day of camping or fishing or something of the sort which I suppose is appropriate for the episode that we're about to uh, go through now I've mentioned folk horror just there and one of the aspects of this episode that I want to focus on is whether or not the Blair Witch movie can be considered an example of folk horror. It's not I haven't seen it regarded as such too often but for me for me the connections are obvious and I think it slots neatly in but we you can see for yourself whether or not you agree. So Indeed, what is folk horror? Um, the terminology itself uh, is supposed to have come from uh, Mark Gatiss, I believe, who did a, a television documentary about the history of horror some years ago, uh, in which he identifies uh, a certain strand of British horror movies um, from the 60s and 70s, which have certain aspects in common. Now, the uh, unholy trinity, as it's sometimes called, of the, the three original films, that he cites as an inspiration for this subcategory of horror are, uh, of course, Witchfinder General from the 1960s. I think it's 68. Uh, the second one is The Blood on Satan's Claw in the early 70s. And, of course, the classic one, the one that you probably have seen if you've seen any of them, is, of course, The Wicker Man from 1973. Now, those are all British films, and in, in many of the original sort of discussions about folk horror it's generally referred to as a British thing but I think if you expand the scope of it a little bit you can find examples from other cultures as well Uh, the movie Midsummer, which was a big hit last year uh, I think fits nicely in so to me that's an example I mean it's an American film and it's set in Sweden but it fits nicely into those categories the British film the Ritual, based on the book by Adam Neville, which was uh, a minor success, uh, I think two, three years ago, uh, and is also very much worth a look. I think it's still on Netflix. Um, also, again, a British film, but set in Scandinavia with some strong folk horror elements there as well. So it's it's a subgenre that's definitely on the up at the moment. So we'd better get to some definitions about folk horror. Now, I've taken this one from a website called folkhorror.com, and they say... Folk horror is a subgenre of horror fiction characterized by 
reference to European pagan traditions, stories typically involving standing stone circles, earthworks, elaborate rituals or nature deities. While the genre is not overtly concerned with Christian ideology, frequently used terms such as demon and devil appear to associate folk horror with Christian demonology. However, many stories will initially imply that menacing forces are satanic. The same forces are often found to predate established Christianity. Folk horror is discordant with neo-paganism in its portrayal of magical agencies as rarely, if ever, benevolent. That's pretty interesting. Uh, I, like the, I like how they bring in the Christian ideas there, stating that, you know, at the beginning of these stories, uh, we will sometimes frame the, the kind of supernatural elements in a Christian through a Christian lens, we might say, oh, this is something that's demonic or something that's satanic. But then later on, it will turn out that this is, in fact, something much older, uh, usually something tied to the landscape, uh, something tied to a pre-Christian culture. And if your HP uh, Lovecraft bells are ringing there, well, take yourself a drink. Um, another definition from filmschoolrejects.com, they say about folk horror that landscape and environment is an essential theme of the genre. These tales are set in the countryside or rural regions and often present the juxtaposition between lush pastoral scenery and cruel, horrific terror. These settings give the films a strong visual aesthetic, but they're also a key component of another theme that defines the genre, that is, isolation. And Film School Rejects also states, Folk horror is concerned with characters and communities who were located out of the way of urban environments. As such, they have developed their own skewered belief systems, which results in violent and twisted acts being carried out on the unfortunate victims who find themselves caught up in the madness. These communities have ranged from pagans to hoodie gangs, and they can be any group of people who live beyond the fringes of normal society. I kind of wonder here if they're expanding the definition of folk horror to, to include sort of so-called hoodie horror, which is a, often a distinctly British um, sub-sub-genre of horror that was popular in the last decade. I guess films like Eden Lake or Harry Brown come to mind. Definitely on the fringes of what I'd consider folk horror, but uh, certainly something to think about, but might be a discussion for another day. However, I think that all of these definitions do help to uh, explain why I would place the Blair Witch Project in amongst this, um, this set of categories. I mean, we've got the isolation, we've got the pagan traditions, or at least the Christian demon the Christian demonological interpretation of uh, pagan traditions. We have uh, lush pastoral scenery and cruel, horrific terror. So a lot of this stuff fits in with what we see in the film. So is The Blair Witch Project indeed an American example of folk horror? Well, stick with us and we'll decide for ourselves. What else is it worth saying about the Blair Witch Project before we get stuck into the elements of the film itself? Well, for better or for worse, it's credited with sort of giving a boost to the now much maligned found footage subgenre, which has really been done to death ever, ever since. And I think that's a credit to the original Blair Witch, as it just was so successful. And what it did, it did so well that so many people tried to copy it. Of course, it is a cheap thing to do as well. It's economic. It's good for your wallet if you're a filmmaker. But very few of the projects that followed it, uh, I think, had the same success as it did. 
uh, imitating that particular style. There are some precursors, of course, in this genre that are worth mentioning. One of the most famous ones, of course, being, the, or infamous, I should say, being Cannibal Holocaust from 1980. That's part of the whole sort of 70s, 80s Italian schlock, uh, gut muncher, cannibal movies and zombie movies. This one directed by well-known Italian schlockmeister Ruggero Diodato, who famously had to appear in court to prove that uh, he didn't actually kill anybody on his film, that it was not in fact a snuff movie, and he was made to produce his actors and have them appear in court uh, to, to prove that in fact they had not been murdered for the film. Uh, closer to the time of The Blair Witch, in 1998, there was a, an independent movie called The Last Broadcast. Now, this was by two guys named Stefan Avalos and Lance Weiler. I've seen this. It, uh, it was on YouTube. I don't know if it still is. I watched it some years ago. Um, it's okay. It's, it's a very small film. And it's not, it doesn't pull things off, I think, as successfully as Blair Witch does. I think there's a reason why this one flew under the radar and Blair Witch was a breakout. But the elements that are similar between the two films are rather striking. So in the last broadcast, we have a, a small number of characters who run a, a TV show from, I think, like a, you know, like a local cable thing, sort of a Wayne's World type scenario, I suppose, which is a very 90s concept. And they decide to do a live broadcast online. So the internet, of course, being a very new up-and-coming thing at the time, from a wooded area. They decide to go into the Jersey Barrens, the New Jersey Pine Barrens, to look for the fabled Jersey Devil. And while they're in the woods reporting live, strange things start to happen to them. So you see there's a lot of crossover there. People in the woods looking for a legendary creature and report recording themselves and then having kind of supernatural or bizarre things happen to them. So yeah, the parallels definitely are striking, but the timelines don't really add up. Even though the last broadcast came out about a year before the Blair Witch, the, there's a lot of paperwork and, and um, bureaucratic paper trail stuff to show that the ideas for the Blair Witch had been in place since about 1993, and their production had been um, going on for quite a while by the time the last broadcast came out. So it's definitely possible that... Um, People who made The Blair Witch might have seen the last broadcast before their own film came out, but there's a lot to show that they've been planning it uh, from a long time earlier. So what about the beginning of The Blair Witch? It starts with the two directors' producers, who are Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. Now, they started as film students. Um, when this idea first happened, like I said, they began proceedings in 1993, when they decided that they found documentaries about, you know, things that were paranormal or serial killers and true crime. They, d they found that stuff a lot scarier than the actual fictional horror movies. And uh, they've been recorded as saying that uh, TV shows such as In Search Of really inspired them. So that's uh, an infamous uh, 1970s TV show starring Leonard Nimoy, which helped popularize all sorts of fringe ideas. And uh, for folks in America, it seems to have been one of the things that really inspired a lot of uh, people who now investigate strange things when, uh, because they saw this show when they were kids. 
Anyway, Myrick and Sanchez decided that, that they wanted all of the dialogue to be improvised for their films. So they had this great idea of, you know, having a rough outline, but not writing an actual script. And what they did next was they held auditions in New York City, where they found their three leads, who were Heather Donahue, Michael C. Williams, and Joshua Leonard. Uh, these actors going uh, under their own first names uh, during the film. Uh, filming was to take place in the state of Maryland at a place called Seneca Creek State Park, which is, well, to my European ears, quite large at 2,500 acres. And the size of the park is something I'm going to talk about here, because for me, the theme of isolation is key to this film and how it does and occasionally doesn't get that idea across. And like I said, it's one of the things that I think separates maybe North American folk horror from European horror, where they just have the sort of distances that we just can't, we just don't have, I think. So it adds an extra element to the tale. So our three lead actors were basically given cameras and other pieces of equipment and sent into the woods in this state park for several days with fairly vague instructions. So they were given a rough outline of what was to happen on each day, but then they were to improvise all of the dialogue based on that. And they were kept on their own in the woods for as long as possible to sort of increase the realism. So when you're watching the film, the, the sort of tension between the characters, I mean, they're acting, but to some degree, they are under a lot of stress. They have been in the woods for several days, they are getting tired and hungry and cranky and they are frequently lost and once in a while they're fol they're well they're following gps machines which in those in the 90s were fairly clunky because i remember even 10 years later when i was doing uh, field work in the american prairies over in oregon uh, you know the, the amount of space you had to traverse in, in in parts of america and the machinery you had to do it, even, like I say, even 10 years later, was quite overwhelming. So I can imagine that some of the fear, or at least the anxiety that you see on screen is real. Anyway, they would follow the GPS units to specif specified areas where the film crew had left messages for them hidden in film canisters. So this would again give them their instructions for the next day uh, and kind of move the plot along, such as it was. So we're talking about long hikes, little food, and actual, actually quite a lot of harassment from the crew. So some of that stuff you see at nighttime where, you know, they're in their tent and they hear noises outside in the woods and they wake up and find, you know, strange things hanging from the trees around their tents. Some of that was real. Now, they knew they were in a film, but at the same time, they didn't know exactly what was going to happen or when it was going to happen. So quite unnerving for them and again like I said some of that tension is quite real. The house that features in the climax of the film is called the Griggs house that was a real um, historical structure in the Seneca State Park but it has been demolished. I understand that uh, fans of the film tried to get that stopped and indeed had successfully halted plans to demolish it but that shortly afterwards it was taken down without any pre-warning that it was going to be done. Now, as I mentioned at the very beginning, the marketing for this film was extremely strong and the marketers did things that had literally never been done before. They took advantage of the super new internet to make a fake website. They were going to film premieres handing out missing persons posters and they created a rather staggering amount of 
background information, world building and legend creation to make the, the whole films feel kind of real. Like I said in the intro, uh, the stories of the legend of the Blair Witch came to us, you know, in many different ways. And then we're only afterwards that we find out that maybe some of them were tied into the film. So it really felt like a real pre-existing organic legend and that the, the film was a, a byproduct of it and not, in fact, the other way around. One of the most effective things they did was the creation of a what we now call a mockumentary. It's called The Curse of the Blair Witch. It's also on YouTube. It's about 45 minutes long and it is a masterclass in world creation, world building. In 1785, several children in the township of Blair, Maryland, accused Ellie Kedward of witchcraft. She was found guilty and banished in the middle of winter. It was assumed she died from exposure. The following year, all of her accusers and half the town's children had vanished. Fearing a curse, the entire township fled as soon as the weather broke and vowed never to utter the name Ellie Kedward again. The use of actors mixed with real locals, the sort of stumbling nature of the, the dialogue, the, it, there's an incredible sense of reality coming from this. It's spooky to watch this today, you know, 20 years later, knowing what I know and knowing how all this was faked. It still feels like such an organic world that they've created. So you look a little blurry there. Let me zoom out on you. Okay. okay. Good morning. Got it. Okay, I got you. This is my home. Okay. Oh. Which I am leaving the comforts of for the weekend. Well, Heather uh, was uh, probably one of the two or three best students that, that I've that I've had the pleasure of, of teaching. Um, she was committed. She was energetic. She was very creative. She was someone who I think uh, reminded really me of myself really a lot at, at her age. She was looking to develop and find her her voice. And they drop all sorts of things into this documentary and also on the website. And I, I make a difference because I didn't see the documentary at the time, but I, I remember exploring the website with a friend and looking over all the... We saw photographs of the, the car that was found after the students went missing. There were pictures of them from high school and from plays that they were in. There's interviews with the families and the parents. It just all felt really real. And it's almost ima impossible to imagine that happening today. I think it was something that could only have happened at that time when we were still, to some extent, naive about the internet, you know? And once, they used to say, once upon a time, the camera never lies, and that if you saw something on film, it was real. Well, you know, we stopped believing that a long time ago, but I'm here to tell you that by 1999, you know, we still believed something that we read on the internet. If it looked like a real news report, or if it sounded like a real urban legend, then maybe we would just take it seriously. Incidentally, the town of Blair itself is fake, but uh, it's supposed to be outside a place called Burkittsville in Maryland, and Burkittsville is real. So within the mythology of the Blair Witch, uh, Blair itself was a colony 
town that was abandoned many years ago. So you can go and see Burkittsville, but if you want to see what's left of Blair, you have to wander into the forest. Now, I've decided to read out a few bits from the website. Incredibly, the original website for the film is still up, the one from 1999. I guess you could look at it now as an art artifact of the history of innovative film promotion. So there's there's so much stuff here. They really went to town. And I guess you have to cast your mind back to all those years ago and try and imagine how convincing this would have been to, to those of us who were there. Here's a timeline that they've included. The township of Blair was located in north-central Maryland, two hours from Washington, D.C. February 1785. Several children accuse... Ellie Kedward of luring them into her home to draw blood from them. Kedward is found guilty of witchcraft, banished from the village during a particularly harsh winter and presumed dead. November 1786. By midwinter, all of Kedward's accusers, along with half of the town's children, vanish. Fearing a curse, the townspeople flee Blair and vow never to utter Ellie Kedward's name again. So, Ellie Kedward is the titular, titular, whatever that word is. She's the witch of the title. Now, as I said, the legends of the Blair Witch have been expanded upon over the years by sequels and games and other properties, none of which are as good as the original. But for those of us who like a little bit of lore, they do add something to it. And I was intrigued to find out that um, Ellie Kedward is supposed to be Irish. Now, I don't know if that's present in the original film anywhere or if that's from some of the media that came later, but basically, here's the basic story according to uh, the Blair Witch fandom wiki. Young children from the township returned to investigate if Ellie had died yet. They found her alive and still tied to the tree. The children sent dogs after her and slashed her with sticks and knives. They dipped their hands in her blood and pressed handprints into her flesh before untying her and hanging her from the very same tree. By midwinter, all of Ellie Kedward's accusers, along with half of the town's children, vanished. So you can see there that's mostly stuff from the original 1999 website, but just a few other little bits uh, thrown in there as well. One of my favourite aspects of all this world building is just how wide and sprawling it is. You have this original legend going back to the 1780s, which interestingly is about 100 years after the real New England witch uh, trials had had come to an end. I mean, the whole thing in Salem was 1692, I think, which even then was considered a very late burst of witchcraft hysteria. So yeah, it's odd that they chose such a late date of 1785 for all of this, but basically there's you could pick an era almost, and there's a legend, and all of them are of a slightly different flavor, you know, and they're only vaguely tied in together, which makes this a very, like I said, a very sprawling legend. Anyway, here's another interesting element from the timeline. May 25th, 1941. An old hermit named Rustin Parr walks into a local market and tells the people there that he is finally finished. After police hike for four hours to his secluded house in the woods, they find the bodies of seven missing children in the cellar. Each child has been ritualistically murdered and disemboweled. Parr admits to everything in detail, telling authorities that he did it for an old woman ghost who occupied the woods near his house. He is quickly convicted and hanged. 
very spooky and effective stuff. You got this 1940s serial killer angle as well. I can only presume that the house that features in the climax of the film is supposed to be Rustin Paris as well. And I didn't quite pick up on all of this when I saw the film first, uh, leaving the end of it even more mysterious and spooky than it is in context. But one of the things I do like about the film is you can read as much of this lore as you like and it still doesn't really explain what's going on. And that, that appeals to the way I like my horror, but we will talk about that a little bit later. October 20th, 1994. Montgomery College students Heather Donahue, Joshua Leonard and Michael Williams arrive in Burkittsville to interview locals about the legend of the Blair Witch for a class project. Heather interviews Mary Brown, an old and quite insane woman who has lived in the area all her life. Mary claims to have seen the Blair Witch one day near Tappy Creek in the form of a hairy, half-human, half-animal beast. October 21st, 1994. In the early morning, Heather interviews two fishermen who tell the filmmakers that Coffin Rock is less than 20 minutes from town and easily accessible by an old logging trail. The filmmakers hike into Black Hills Forest shortly thereafter and they're never seen again. So this basically covers the opening of the film and acts as a bit of a trailer or a teaser trailer for those of us who were reading it uh, back in the day wondering whether or not we wanted to go and see the film. I remember hearing how scary this was. I also remember hearing that like nothing happens in it and yet it's, it's incredibly affecting and incredibly spooky, which having watched it again recently I think is probably true. So the budget for this film was about $60,000 eventually grossing that $250 million worldwide, making it easily one of the most successful independent films of all time. Like I said, I didn't watch it back in the day. I didn't see it until probably about 2015 or 16, when I was living in Minnesota, and a housemate of mine who was a bit younger than me uh, wanted to see it, having heard lots about it over the years. And again, like, like The Exorcist, for those of us who are a bit older... You know, even if we hadn't seen it, we'd heard about it. It had a bit of a, an aura and a mythos about it as being this particularly uh, disturbing or scary film. So I watched it again for the first time since then this week. And that's all the background information for now. We're going to get into my own thoughts uh, in sort of the order that I had them while watching the first Blair Witch movie. One of the first things that occurred to me re-watching this was just the nature of, of belief and how fragile it can be. So, I, like I said at the opening, I really hold that memory of believing that this might be real. I hold that quite closely to me. I've always had an interest in things that are spooky and mysterious. Uh, I, I try to be open-minded, but I have to look into them and I have to debunk things if that's where the evidence takes me. So I really love that um, that feeling when you first come across a, a mystery that, you know what, maybe it's going to be real this time. And I guess I was just young enough and silly enough to take this seriously when it came out. I was the right age. And like I said, I remember doing all the research and wondering whether or not it was real. So it re they really nailed that urban legend quality and I guess watching it again this week and uh, getting to watch the fake documentary they made too really brought that all back to me. Such a, such a delicate emotion, so easily squandered, so easily lost, that I really value any occasions when you can, you can have it yourself. I guess it's like when you go camping and you wake up in the middle of the night and you hear a strange noise and 
you know it's just a small animal but you know in that time and in that place some sort of primal instinct kicks in and you, you can't afford to take any chances you uh, and you, you your your mind starts running to whatever the worst possible potential things might be another thing that occurred to me watching it again was just how prevalent this was in pop culture at the time there were so many spoofs of this so many of us who remember the pretty awful scary movie films or any of the other sort of spoofs of of the horror movies of the time the, the scene particularly at the end where heather is apologizing to everybody and the camera is going up her nose that was that was done so much there was a version of it in one of the scary movies where you know, like copious amounts of of gooey snot are coming out of her nose which you know what having watched the original uh, this week not as much of an exaggeration as i would have remembered that scene is is pretty gooey <laughs> coming back to it now uh, something else I'd like to say is about about the, the opening bit, maybe the opening third of the film, when they're going around the town of Burkittsville and asking locals uh, for information about some of the legends. I really enjoy how most of the lore, and I've read some of it already, it's total red herrings. These are things that either don't directly tie into the story or don't tie into the story at all or are only vaguely connected to it. I really love this because, number one, it reminds me, it makes it feel like a real paranormal story. Because guess what? Real legends are messy. They change, they mutate, they sprawl, and uh, depending on who's telling them, they can be completely different and they can become completely unmoored from whatever the origin story was. So, you know, just because this is supposed to be a story about a witch from colonial times doesn't mean that every element of it has to tie in directly to that. We, we get stories about a sighting of a sort of a wolf or an animal-like incarnation of the witch. We get a sighting of a ghost woman who, uh, whose feet never touched the ground. Uh, we get the serial killer Rustin Parr in the 1940s. Uh, we get the story of Coffin Rock, which I will read from the Blair Witch fandom wiki now. It says, Coffin Rock, sometimes called Coffin Hill, was a large, flat rock located in the Black Hills Forest in Maryland, about 20 minutes from Burkittsville. In March of 1886, eight-year-old Robin Weaver was reported missing and search parties were dispatched. Although Weaver returned, one of the search parties did not. Their bodies were found weeks later by a second search party at Coffin Rock, tied together at the arms and legs and completely disemboweled. Their bodies later vanished when the team left and returned with additional help to remove and bury the bodies. That's great stuff. I, I mean, only tangentially can that be connected to the Ellie Kedward story. It's so much spookier having these weird, baseless, spooky things happening than if, it, you know, every element of it was clearly a manifestation of Ellie Kedward. You know, just people seeing her as a ghost or, or as a witch. I, I really do hate it when horror is explained. You know, so many horror films have a great first half where spooky mysterious things happen and then they're utterly ruined in the second half when the filmmaker feels the need to give an explanation you know it's it's a basic filmmaking it's a basic film school thing isn't it that nothing goes into a film or a story that isn't necessary and everything has to tie up and everything has to be explained and it just doesn't work for horror you need an, an aspect of the unknown in there you know i'm not going to paraphrase lovecraft here we all know the quote that i'm dancing around but 
you know, fear of the unknown is, is, is a powerful thing and it's almost always better than any explanation you're going to give. So I guess if you're writing a script and you're feeling that filmmaker's urge to tie everything up neatly with a bow on it, you know, maybe maybe try and rethink that. One of my favourite non-British folk horror movies is Picnic at Hanging Rock, the original one from the 1970s, I think. It's an Australian movie about one mysterious happening, a mysterious disappearance, and there is absolutely no explanation given for it. And the film is so much better for it. It's based on a book where the author, years later, produced a chapter that explained it, and it's so dumb. It robs the story of all of its mystery and lore. So, yeah, I I, I think very rarely is a film improved by over-explaining. You know, you, I think you have to be a hell of a storyteller to pull that one off. I think you're going up against the human imagination, and the human imagination almost always wins. One other element of this opening bit of the film is that they do ask a lot of the locals and right at the beginning some of them just flat out have never heard of the of the witch legend and that made me chuckle a bit because as anyone who's done some investigating on these sort of things knows that happens all the time you know you've read about this uh, supposedly infamous happening you go to the place where it happens you ask around and nobody cares nobody's heard about it you know sometimes these things are just important to those of us who who, who like to look into them uh, for a moment when they're driving around Burkittsville, we get a, a snippet of a song playing, and that reminded me that there was an album released at the time for the film called Blair Witch Project, Josh's Blair Witch Mix. So I guess at that time, those of us with the ability to do so were making mix CDs on toast and, you know, CD burning programs. So that was a bit of a cool thing. But this is a nice snapshot of maybe late era Generation X musical taste. So I'm looking at the at the list here. We've got Lydia Lunch doing a, a version of Gloomy Sunday, which you might have heard of as the Hungarian suicide song. We've got Public Image Limited, Skinny Puppy, Bauhaus, the Afghan Wigs, and uh, Type O Negative, amongst others. So real, uh, real slice of late 90s there, a bit of a sign of the times. Something that's very evident at this part of the film is just uh, the excitement of being young and working on a on a project like this. I know I've done that before myself, whether it's going and investigating something strange or whether it's filmmaking. And, you know, I did a bit of that when I was younger. The The, the excitement of, you know, getting the first shot in the can and being out and about and doing your own thing and getting ready to produce something that you think is going to be great. It's really convincing and palpable in this scene. And maybe that's because the filmmakers themselves uh, must have been feeling a bit like this at the time. If you think about what they were about to pull off, they must have had an inkling that it was going to be something special, you know, for such a cheap film, such an independent film made with very little money and very little resources. They, it's just a great idea. Give the, you know, in, in an era before reality TV, the notion of giving the actors the cameras and letting them do their own thing, it's just incredible, you know? And, and imagine, I remember what a big deal jackass was and the osbournes and some of that early sort of reality stuff now i'm not quite old enough to remember the real world but certainly the second wave of it it just felt really fresh and instantly everybody was trying to imitate it certainly my friends in cork and i did some sort of rip off jackass type stuff as well 
Um, unfortunately, I just did most of the editing and sound and stuff rather than doing too many of the silly stunts. But surely these filmmakers knew that they were onto something big. You know, this was just before all of that uh, stuff really exploded. Watching some of the locals tell their stories and, you know, bring in some of the legends and lore of Burkittsville and the Blair Witch really makes... it's it's There are some really hypnotic scenes of these it kind of reminds me that this could be seen as a precursor to the sort of community of, of Reddit people and YouTube people who just tell spooky stories now. It's a huge thing. There's lots of podcasts and YouTube series that do nothing except this. And I guess there are some ways in which a simple human voice telling a story, especially a spooky one, is always going to trump a sort of a polished Hollywood type show. Uh, with with special effects and a uh, high budget. Anyway, moving the story along, the three uh, filmmakers head into the woods, which um, is not called Seneca State Park in the film. It's, of course, called the Black Hills. But effectively, it's supposed to be the same thing, more or less. And they they get lost. And this is the main section of the film where they're just wandering around, getting lost and getting agitated and starting to turn on one another. And as I said earlier, not entirely all acting either. Well, as they start to really get on each other's nerves, their individual personality traits start to clash. Heather, uh, the, in particular, seems to be the boss and the leader. The, the film they're making seems to be largely her project. And I certainly remember at the time there was so much hostility towards her. People really hated Heather. They really saw her as a, a slave driver. They saw her as endangering everybody for her own selfish ends to get the film made. And indeed, at several points in the film, the other two guys, uh, Josh and Mike, turn on her and say that. But watching it now, I felt a lot more for her than I did for them. She's really driven. You know, she really cares about this film. She's a forward-thinking person. She does pretend like she knows where she's going for a bit longer than she should have. But besides that, she doesn't make any poor decisions. And really, after that point, everything that goes wrong, is, is as I see it, is generated by them and not her and her attitude throughout is far more helpful than theirs and mistakes she makes you know are, are very human mistakes and ones that can be chalked up to to ambition and uh, to her dedication which are things that in our society we are kind of supposed to admire in this day and age their fear once they become lost is utterly convincing and I've worked in North America a few times and I know the feeling of getting lost in a very big wilderness. I guess it's there's nothing quite like it here. Uh, there's nothing quite like that feeling of realizing that you're not where you think you are and the sun is going down. It happened to me a few times um, when I worked in North Ontario, once with a friend, once by myself, where we were in parks that you know weren't even that big and yet... Once you've been walking for about 40, 45 minutes and you realize that you're not where you think you are, things start to go downhill very quickly and it's a very strange feeling. Um, you don't have to be that far away from civilization and you don't have to be lost for very long before everything around you changes and your attitude towards everything changes as well. So as something that's happened to me, I find these scenes extremely convincing. One element which is always a problem for found footage films is the perennial, well, why would you keep filming question. And, you know, different films come up with uh, different ways of getting around this. If, you've, if anybody remembers Cloverfield, the main character who hilariously is named HUD, that's heads up display, is a little bit of 
um, terminology imported from, I think, video games. Well, he's a cameraman, that's, that's his thing, that's his gimmick, so he keeps filming no matter what. In the Blair Witch Project, Heather, of course, is an incredibly dedicated filmmaker. The other characters call her out at various times. They ask her constantly to put down the camera. And at first, you know, we see this as an element of her dedication to the project. But later on, she breaks down and says, it's all I've got, you know. And, and we realize that she's actually using the camera to maybe keep herself at a distance from everything. And that the... the, the the persona of the filmmaker is allowing her a bit of a distance from what's really going on and maybe it's the only thing that keeps her from breaking down the way they are so you know allowing herself to pretend like she's still at a distance from what's going on because she's chronicling it rather than living it is the only thing that keeps her going anyway spooky things do start happening to them but it's all extremely minimalist stuff it's you know inside the tent and they hear noises and they rush out and there are long shots of the camera looking out into the blackness and not seeing anything, and it's all incredibly effective. I, I, it's been done so much since, and there are so many like bad ghost hunting programs that seem to exist only on this trope, so much so that I, I'm kind of loath to, to give it credit. But, you know, within the framework of the film, all the heavy lifting that's been done already in the first half and establishing the legend and the lore and the world-building... I'm more inclined to take these bits seriously. I'm more invested, I guess, in the film. Nothing here feels lazy. All of the scares feel earned. You know, no jump scares or anything like that. Amongst the spooky things that happen to them, of course, are the appearance of the infamous uh, stick figures hanging from the trees. Uh, such a spooky scene when they first find those. And it's such a simple thing, such a little thing. And yet, you know, no information is given to us about these. We don't have any reason to link them to the story of Ellie Kedward or anything else. We just, we just see them, and some something primal inside us knows that this is this is wrong and this is fucked up. You know, it's something very deep. I think that it touches, and I, uh, there's an element of ritual. It's like when we first see the Wicker Man in, in the film, The Wicker Man. You know, something bad is going to happen, even if you had no knowledge of. James Fraser and the Golden Bough and the history of supposed Celtic sacrifice and all of that, which is indeed where the, the, the makers of the Wicker Man took most of their inspiration. Even if you don't know that, you see it, and it just feels like something ancient and something terrible and some power that's beyond us. And I can feel my language already drifting into the Lovecraftian. You know, this is this we're dealing with something older than than man older than memory older than modern society and that's what makes the Blair Witch folk horror to me there are precursors to it I'm going to mention a short story called Sticks by a fella named Carl Edward Wagner now this is a short story from 1974 which is pretty good it's not you know it's not one of my favorites but the first half is a lot better in the second half and the first half is where i think the blair witch might have gotten some ideas we i can't find any information on whether the filmmakers were actively um taking this as an inspiration or not but the the parallels once again are striking so when the short story sticks uh, the main character is a horror writer who is wandering in the woods of new england in the 1930s or 40s some point before the the second world war and he's deep in the woods and he finds first these mysterious little uh, lattice work twigs tied together into strange patterns and he continues to follow them and then he finds a mysterious 
uh, concrete structure, like a house with a cellar with something weird in the bottom of it. The first half of the story is very effective. It's a, it's a great build-up. The, the little latticework figures are incredibly haunting and spooky. And again, like many stories, when you don't know what it is, it's far more effective. Once you do find out what it is, it's not so good. So the, for me, the second half of the story doesn't work quite as well. It ends up being a sort of a critique or a spoof of uh, 1930s pulp fiction writers, in particular Lovecraft, um, and supposedly was an inspiration for elements of the HBO show True Detective, which is a big favorite of mine. If you remember, the, the serial killer or the cult that were the main villains in that would occasionally leave these sort of latticework stick structures um, at the site of their kills. So you could, if you want to, do, draw a straight line between Sticks and the Blair Witch and then uh, True Detective as well. So all of this sort of ritual stuff, that's the feeling that you get when you're looking at those uh, those little weird stick figures. They also find rock cairns that have been put up outside their tent. Incredibly spooky moment as well. And just, just the feeling that somebody has been out there, especially when you're supposed to be somewhere so remote, and feeling that, you know, you're not actually on your own, but some creep is out there messing with you. Uh, I find it incredibly unsettling. Far more unsettling than if something maybe overtly supernatural had happened, because, of course, you know, nothing impossible has happened yet. It's entirely possible that there's just some weirdos or some cult out there. Uh, somehow I find that uh, idea even more, even more disturbing. And, of course, this hits hard onto the pagan elements once again, cairns, to those of us from the Celtic nations, uh, something we associate with uh, northwestern Europe and ancient societies and ritual and temples and all that good stuff that is just screaming folk horror to me. To anyone who's done their studies into the history of the notions of witchcraft as well, I'm going to have to mention Margaret Murray here, who I do have an episode coming up all about her, but it's, it's going to be scripted, so it'll be a long time coming. But Margaret Murray was a largely a British Egyptologist in the 1920s. She wrote a book called The Witch Cult in Western Europe, which claimed that elements of the, the witch trials were actually, you know, that witches from the witch trials were real, but they were actually the, the people who had inherited a pre-Christian pagan tradition from Europe that was still going up until medieval times or early modern times. So again, you know, if you're looking at New England, you've got the connections to Salem and the witch trials. If you bring in the ideas of Margaret Murray, who was incredibly influential and, you know, her ideas were taken seriously in some quarters for decades after they'd been properly debunked by academia. Again, it's all incredibly relevant stuff and incredibly folk horror stuff. I really enjoy these camping scenes as well. There's with any kind of proper camping, there's a delicious kind of a scary thrill to it. Again, it I get very nostalgic when I, I think of my, my camping times in the US or Canada because it was part of my job. I used to have to lead groups out into the bush and, you know, the, the feeling of isolation and scariness is, is quite, makes you feel alive, I guess. I remember, you know, being asleep at night and somebody would wake up and they would just get a notion that you know there was something moving outside was it a bear or so sometimes it was that you know what what uh, Douglas Adams might call the the long dark tea time of the soul I think uh, in any night there's a there's a part of the night when 
you're vulnerable to sort of magical thinking and the doors kind of just open, you know, and uh, anything anything seems possible, at least just for a moment. And I've heard people's, people say the weirdest things during that time. I've heard people express beliefs in, in really, really odd things uh, really on it, from, from very unexpected people as well. I had one person uh, when we were camping in the middle of North Minnesota, just in the middle of the woods and two or three days in, told me that they believed in, in skinwalkers and, uh, you know, that wasn't their cultural background at all, but it just came out of this guy. <laughs> he was so sincere about it and, you know, it's the kind of thing I might snigger at ordinarily, but I just, in the, in that time and place, you just don't. So these these scenes of nighttime camping terror really resonate with me. One of the things that uh, Heather says during this point is, it's on all sides of us, which, again, we're getting into the little bit of the supernatural here, you know, things that are just not possible. One thing worth mentioning is the treatment of nature and the woods in this film, because folk horror, as we've mentioned, is in intimately tied to nature, and there's often a, a big element of scenery and scenery shots and landscape shots, which, oddly enough, I thought, watching it this time, this film really lacks. There are very few establishing shots of the forest or of the woods. Now, that's because of the way it was shot. It's supposed to be, you know, these three film students with handheld cameras, and they stick to that conceit the whole way through. Obviously, it would ruin things if suddenly there was a nice, beautiful establishing shot, you know, taken from a tripod, and everything looked magical and beautiful. That would ruin the conceit. Instead, what you get is a very tightly focused and, and consequently a very claustrophobic film. So, you know, it works in a different way. But the, the, the forest always looks really ordinary throughout. It never is framed in a way that is, you know, deliberately threatening or menacing. And I, I suppose it would look a little bit cheesy if they did. You know, if there were shots of, you know, the, dar the forest looking dark and spooky and bats coming out of trees and you know kind of hackneyed horror imagery that's not what this is about at all the forest is only ever really in the background and we never get any any long or or di distant establishing shots of it we often say in in film that you know a, a location is almost like a character itself and in this film being as everybody remembers it as you know that film where the the kids get lost in the woods the woods itself has a real back seat it isn't a living presence the way it is in other folk horror movies but uh, maybe that adds to the authenticity of it because there's no way you could have it worked into the script that the kids would stop and take a lovely beautiful establishing shot however it also does make the isolation of the film feel a little bit strange because you never get that feeling that they're super isolated i mean it, it all happens through their own acting and through their despair as they you know, spends more and more days away from civilization. But there's no shots that show you how big the forest is or how far away anybody is. It, it's all done through the actors themselves. But I guess me turning on my old filmmaker hat or head from years ago makes me feel like, hmm, this could almost have been filmed anywhere. You know, you could have done this in some, some little city park almost if you filmed it the right way with close shots, which most of the film is. But yeah, yeah something interesting to think about. Nonetheless, uh, speaking about geography, there comes a point in the film where they realize that even though they've been walking all day in a straight line using the compass, they've come back to where they started. And this makes me, you know, start to wonder, well, is the geography itself abnormal? Is there something 
strange about the place that they're in. And this gets to the heart of folk horror again, I think, because it's not just that, you know, once upon a time a witch lived here and the place is cursed. It's that, well, maybe even before she was here, there was something about this area that that we don't understand, you know, as as Europeans or as non-natives, uh, maybe we're destined never to understand it. So again, like you're, it's it, there's shades of picnic at Hanging Rock here, but there's also shades of you know, pet cemetery and and the old hoary trope of the Indian burial ground. But the notion that we're standing on an older land than we than we're used to, and one that we've not taken the trouble to understand. And yeah, if anyone is is interested in that idea, I think it's most fully explored, or at least most clearly explored in the original Picnic at Hanging Rock. So that's uh, one that's well worth checking out. Throughout the rest of the film, as far as I can see, Heather is pretty responsible and the guys just get more and more dickish. So my heart is really with her um, during most of this one. And when they get another outbreak of the, the stick men hanging from the trees, you know, the most messed up moment of the film, uh, Heather's initial response, as always, is, I've got to get this on 16mm, which again, is one of the reasons why people didn't like her, because it makes her seem like someone who only cares about the film and doesn't care about human life. But as I said earlier, I think it's tied into her own coping mechanism, and that's the reason why she's able to keep going and, you know, not break down as early as the other two guys. Now, there's a scene towards the end when uh, she hears a noise outside the tent at night, and goes out to chase whatever it is that's out there. And this is an incredible moment because according to behind-the-scenes stories, there was going to be a sighting of the Blair Witch or some supernatural entity in this shot. And indeed, they had a crew member wearing some odd costume with something stuck on top of his head who was supposed to be seen in this shot. Heather was supposed to turn the camera when she was running and just catch a fleeting glimpse of, you know, something weird out in the woods. And she didn't. She just somehow missed the shot and they decided not to go back and reshoot it. And I'm super glad that they did because this film remains sort of pure to me. The fact that they never go there, they never show you anything, they never give in to that impulse to just tie everything up with a bow. And it, it leaves you, your imagination open to interpret things however you wish. And, you know, I think there's a reason why this film has lingered in the memory as long as it has when other ones have fallen by the wayside. And I think it's the fact that they never go there and they never show you anything. Something that uh, was not uh, stuck to in sequels and other media that came after this one. Uh, it's worth mentioning that the film is a, it's a tough watch. It's not fun. Uh, you're watching three people unravel and freak out and take it out on one another. And none of them are at their best, shall we say. Uh, and they're not the most pleasant people to be around. So there's a lot of angst a lot of shouting and a lot of negativity, as I suppose there should be, but it is it never feels exploitative. It's all, you know, working towards a goal. Like I said, the heavy lifting is done in the first part of the film so that none of this feels, like, boring or unnecessary. I do really generally hate it in horror films when we're just introduced to a bunch of characters who are unlikable and are just rude to each other the whole time, and then when they start to get killed off by whatever supernatural entity they're up against you just don't care this is this is not the same this is hard to watch because it's so tight and so focused and so claustrophobic that you are in there with them and you just can't look away 
Anyway, without giving too many spoilers, things start to wrap up when uh, Josh starts to get some... He finds one morning that there's this weird slime on his bag, uh, which is never explained, and then shortly afterwards he disappears, which is also never properly explained. Again, lots of open-ended stuff here, which really works to the film's credit. There's a lot more shots of Heather looking into the dark of the forest when she's awoken by sounds at night. And you know what? Even even you, the viewer, start to see things into the woods. You're starting to look and wonder, is there something there? Did I see something? And even knowing as much as we do about, you know, the science of, of the human tendency to see patterns in random data, you just can't not do it. And I guess in terms of evolution, it's something that has aided us and, and done well for us and allowed us to be as successful as we are. So we can't just turn it off. And when we're, the, you know, the more threatening a situation we're in, the more that tendency, I think, comes to the fore. And this film is just amazing at putting you into that situation and making you think, how would I react? Because you find yourself, you know, looking for threats and looking for danger, uh, even when you know you're watching a film. And even, even when you know, because you've seen it before, that there's nothing there, you're still fooled. Uh, you know, every twig, every tree branch looks like it might be something there. It's an incredible shot. Things wrap up when they find uh, a house, and uh, I suppose, like I said, you're supposed to think it's the house of Rust and Parr, though thankfully nothing so blunt is ever stated on screen. Uh, things come to an end, a fairly unforgettable end as well. But if you've come this far with me, I'm not going to go any further and, and, and do a final spoiler. I think if you haven't seen the film, it's definitely worth checking out for yourself. One thing I want to mention... Does the film work without the true story aspect? Well, I'm a little bit divided on this. I'm watching it obviously from a place of recollection and nostalgia. Not that I saw it at the time, but, you know, I just had so much invested in it even without seeing it. It existed for me as this kind of special thing, this special idea, and that it was elevated, I guess, above other films of a similar type. Watching it now, knowing that it's not real... I still think it's very well made, but we might have a case here of uh, what's sometimes called Seinfeld being not funny, meaning that you've heard so much about something or something was so influential that when you go back and watch the original, it's difficult to see what all the fuss was about. I can imagine a younger person watching this, uh, somebody who's sick to death of, you know, found footage films and stuff like that, and uh, just not seeing what's special about it. But all I can say is do your best to watch it in the right circumstances. You know, go. don't watch this while you're messing with your phone. Don't watch it while you're having a joke with your mates and having a beer and talking all over it. You know, turn down the lights, crank it up, get yourself in the frame of mind of, you know, what if this was real? And try and get yourself as close to the mindset that somebody in 1999 going into the cinema to see it would have had. Inevitably, following the success of the Blair Witch Project, the cash-in sequels and video games and albums rolled in, expanding on the mythos and the world-building of the original, but missing the point of its simplicity and the power of its minimalism. The lore became less open-ended, the urge to explain and tie up loose ends, robbing these follow-up projects of the sheer brute force of the first film. The Blair Witch Project threw us into a world where anything seemed possible, while showing us almost nothing. Our imaginations did the rest. 
no amount of CGI or even handcrafted practical effects could accomplish what the shaky camera and three for real scared young actors could. And yet the pull of this world and its financial success drew artists back to the well over and over again, proving how powerful the elusive urban legend quality of the original really was. We'll examine these efforts in coming episodes, for every artistic endeavour, whether successful or not, has something to teach us about life. For me, the Blair Witch Project carved a place in the nascent history of American folk horror. We have all of the elements present and correct, an isolated location, a troubling relationship to nature and landscape, and folk memories of horror, demons and witches. It is the horror of a wide open landscape which, unlike the England of the original folk horror films, is large enough to swallow you up. It is the horror of colonists, of a people who have washed up on an alien shore and built their society here but who never truly understood it, that there are ancient brooding things linked to the very land itself. It is a particularly new world take on the genre. It is the essence of folk horror, of the weird, and of the eldritch. You've been listening to Wide Atlantic Weird. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we are on Twitter, where we're at Strange Ireland, and we're also over on Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. Please pass on episodes to anyone who you think might enjoy them. Retweet, spread, give us some love, and review, review, review. Or if anything weird has ever happened to you, or if you have an idea for an episode, please do get in touch any really good reviews and we'll be happy to read them out any weird stories and we'll read them out too we promise to believe them but the evidence has to be good so thanks for listening we are certain that satanism exists it's the practice of evil and following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in 